Let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with music. But I think about that a lot, behaving ethically and with kindness and generosity in all of this. In the end, the music and the movies, everything that we work on, our records, it's all going to kind of turn to dust, I think. But the relationships that we've forged with the people that we collaborate with, that's truly important to me. I realize now more than ever. Half the time, I mean, you know, is to show good or is to show bad? I don't know. The people I'm working with are amazing. They're like family. I love it. They love me. It's great. We've worked so hard together. That's the stuff I'm taking away from everything. Hey, this is Jason Tonioli. I'm a piano player that grew up believing it wasn't possible to earn a living and support a family with music. I've proven that idea was wrong and have met hundreds of other people who have found success with their music. This podcast features stories of musicians who have found their own personal version of success and fulfillment in both music and life. This podcast is meant to inspire musicians and help them believe in their abilities and motivate them to share their talents with others. This is the Successful Musicians Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast today. Today, you're joined by Tom Third. This guy has scored over 250 hours of film and television. Tom, you've been nominated for Canadian Screen Awards. You've done, I mean, projects for HBO and all these networks. Um, you're kind of that successful composer that when people think, oh my gosh, I want to be like that guy. And you've got your own studio. But as I was talking to you, you're also teaching students at the university now and still maintaining a crazy schedule with with the music that you're writing for, I don't know if you call that your real job or what you love doing, but anyway, so thank you for joining us today. Let's just rewind the clock all the way back. So you've been doing this for over 20 years now. And, and if you go back to when you were a high school or maybe is when you were a student, did you think, oh, I want to be a composer or how in the world did you get from where you were as a teenager that probably knew everything and where you are now, uh, where you realize you don't know that much and these students maybe know more about text than we do some days. I think my story is similar to a lot of people's. I had no idea that this was what was going to happen or where my career would lead. It was not the plan. I was always into music, obviously, and as a kid and played in high school bands and stuff. But I was actually streaming into kind of an art career, like graphic design or something like that. And I went to art college, but I ended up studying film there. And I was still making music. And then I kind of got struck by lightning in a sense that I got a record deal really early on when I was young, based on stuff I was doing on sort of four-track cassettes. So not long after I graduated from college in like the early 90s, I got a record contract to sort of make electronica slash hip-hop slash trip-hop kind of records. And that's what I did in the 90s. And then I was sort of, my day job was sort of, you know, working on film sets and stuff and doing all these other crazy odd jobs, whatever it was. And then I sort of landed in commercials, writing music, doing jingles for 10 years. And so that was what started paying the rent. So I was making these records and then doing jingles on the side, which was less common then, but I think it's more common now for a lot of people. And I just edged my way out of that kind of work into doing sort of longer stuff. So it went from commercials to doing short films to doing slightly longer films. And then I got a television series in the early 2000s. And that kind of, that's where I'm still doing that stuff. So that's sort of where I landed. Well, in television series, those are, that's not an easy project. You're probably under the gun more than almost anything with all of the episodes you have to do, right? You are correct. It is crazy. 
And when I started doing it, I thought, oh, it's just like the films I was doing, but longer. And I was really wrong about that. The pace is crazy. Everything about it is a bit bit hectic, but that's the good thing too. So anyway, I thought it was uh, thought it was impossible to work as fast as I do now, but you figure out how to do it. There's all kinds of strategies you just realize, oh, it's like running the four minute mile or something. You know, people thought it was impossible and then somebody did it. So yeah, you get into that pace and you learn how to write faster and trust your intuitions more readily. And I'm addicted to it. It's thrilling. Well, and, and now my guess is what you're doing now, there's no way had you been thrown into that 20 years ago, you would have gotten eaten alive. And, you know, but all of the preparation and things that you did in the past probably prepared you to, to be able to handle what you're doing now, right? Yeah. <laughs> but no, the first couple of shows were really challenging and really a struggle. And I just barely got through them alive. But that's like every challenge, right? Every first hard job is like that. So it wasn't like I walked in and went, oh, I aced that one. The first couple of shows were were really brutalizing and not sleeping because you're just behind and it was just really mad. But you get you get better at it. If we were to be sitting in one of your school classes, the college where you're at, I mean, what advice do you wish somebody would have given you back when you were in that stage of life? To, that would have helped you maybe avoid some of the, the challenges you had to suffer through the hard way, maybe. I think the big one, looking back on what I know I could have done better, which was collaborate more in that, like, ask for help when I needed it. Now that I'm mentoring people so much, I think, oh, they're doing exactly what I should have done, which is find people who already know how to do this thing and ask them how they do it. And I think it's as simple as that, you know, is, is really is seek out people who have braved those waters already. Because I was kind of, you know, I was younger and I was a bit of an egomaniac and maybe that's not changed, but I wanted to just do everything myself. I'm going to solve everything myself and rebuild this from scratch, you know, even though it's been done a million times before. So I learned a lot, but it was trial by fire. And I think I could have made it easier if I just like looked around. But this is back, you know, pre-YouTube and pre the internet, you know, almost. So there's way more avenues now for people to like, just go online and watch a tutorial, which is what I do nowadays, you know, when I want to learn something. A lot of times when we're, when we think we know everything, there's definitely value in that struggle to figure things out. But if you don't have to struggle quite that hard, why would you want to as well? Yeah. And within reason, and you still, I mean, there's still a deadline and a delivery date. So your clients and your showrunners and your producers, they don't really care what you had to do to get to the finish line, just as long as you get there, period. So if you get help or do this or whatever, they're, you know, they're good with that. What mistakes do you see some of these students that are coming out of school? You know, if you think about all these people that are in the classes, not all of them are going to be composers. And there's there's just a variety of careers. Even if I look back on, so I was a marketing major in school. And I, I think there might be two or three total people out of this 100 plus person graduating class that maybe even does marketing. So what mistakes do you feel like people make when they're thinking they want to do the music? Is it just they take whatever comes in, in their lap or do they look, you know, oh, this will pay the bills. So they take that job and then they, they hate it forever and never do music. What mistakes do you see are, that are made often? So I know I took everything. It's like, this is just, of all the kinds of work I can do, I'm going to, this is music, I'm going to do commercials, I'm going to just, whatever comes my way, I'm doing it. That served me really well. I met a lot of people 
that way and built, you know, networks and bridges towards projects I might not have worked on otherwise. I still volunteer on a ton of things just to build a relationship. If I see people that get a little bit too precious about the sanctity of their work and that holds them back a little bit. I think if you can find a space where you're pretty chill about collaborating and taking notes and criticism from people and kind of let some of that go, that really can speed up the process, I think. I certainly see composers who are way more talented than I am, no question, who aren't working as much because they're a little more precious about their work. They're a little more high maintenance, we would say, in the business, right? They need to be coddled a bit more. So I think as soon as people can let some of that go a little bit and be a bit more zen, I think that's one of the big steps. That was the big step for me. I didn't set out thinking, oh, I need to become more zen about all of this. But when I did and looked back, I thought, oh, that was really one of the paths that helped me. What have been some of the ways that have been the most effective for you building relationships, you know, whether it's meeting directors or music supervisors, if you're a new kid in the, in the school thinking, okay, I really want to go down the same path as Tom did. How do they go about that? Do they need to go spend a bunch of money on conferences? I mean, where do you find these opportunities? There's a million ways to do this without spending a bunch of money, right? Every, there's so many kind of meetup groups and I encourage people like, you know, I'm a member of the Composers Guild here in Canada so, you know, all the stuff you would have in the States, the Songwriters League, I can't remember the name of it right now, but you know, those things, right? Join all those things. That number one is, I was not a joiner just by, you know, the, I'm a composer for a reason, like a TV composer, because you work on your own most of the time. And for me, that just suits the way I am. You know, I'm just sort of introverted and I just like to focus and get in there. But I was being I was being kind of harassed by the Composers Guild here. And I knew everybody, you know, that was part of it. They said, you got to join. We got to join. We need people like you. And so I finally did it. And then I thought, why did I wait so long to do that? I was hanging out with my fellow composers. It wasn't about, you know, getting work so much, but it was about building up those social muscles and talking to people who had made mistakes and mentoring and learning from people who know way more than I do. So that's number one. That's the number one thing. I tell people to do is like find the, the collective, the groups, the organizations of like-minded individuals and hang out with them. Go for coffee, go for beer, go to shows, whatever that is. Hang out with your peeps. And then the conference thing, you know, film festivals, all of that kind of stuff, that can help for sure. But I think the big step is, is finding your tribe. So with, with the film festivals, for somebody who's brand new coming in, is it do you just go and buy a ticket to a show or what, how do you get your foot in those doors to make it worthwhile going to some of the film festivals? So that's when the conferences I think are kind of useful. And a lot of them have sort of, you know, free tiers and stuff for people to kind of just get in. There's a lot of stuff that's open to the public, you know, just to come, you get a badge, you don't have to buy the big fancy pass and all that stuff. But those things are good. Those are good sort of schmoozy kind of networking events. They're kind of social it's not so much about harassing the people up on stage and trying to hand them your card or something like that. It's really about meeting the people that are there in the audience. That's, I think, where a lot of the real sort of energy goes back and forth. And you talk to somebody, and this has happened to me, right? You know, I've either moderated those things or been in the audience when it's been some famous person up there or something, but just talking to your neighbor and go, what are you working on? And like, oh, I'm working on a movie. And like, I'm a composer. Those things really do happen. I have... 
had the film I am scoring right now. I met the director at a film festival party, you know, and we were just hanging out. We had a lot in common and she knew somebody that I knew. And we just, I said, you know, I want to do your movie and that now we're doing it. So that face-to-face stuff really does help. And I know for a lot of us musicians, right, we're all kind of introverts. We're all kind of, we're not necessarily the best promoters of ourselves, but that's a muscle that you can build up. And I swear, every time I go to one of these things and think, I'm not going to know a soul there. I'm going to feel like a jerk. And right. It's just like that party where you don't know anyone. It's the imposter syndrome. You're you're not worthy to be here, right? Exactly. (laughs) But then you get there, you just like, you know, let's do this. You get there, you walk in the room and you realize, okay, I'm not the only person here that doesn't know anybody. There's a whole bunch of people here that don't know anybody. And all we have to do is go to the food table and start talking. And it just, the whole thing opens up, I find. So for me, that was the terror. Going to a party where I don't know anyone is just the kiss of death for me. I think I'm going to just die on the spot. I get there and then I know a ton of people or I do within 10 minutes because there's a million people in a similar situation. Right. Well, I think a lot of times people confuse sales as, or just talking to other people as being salesy. And in fact, like you mentioned, that people are there, they're all feeling the same way. And they're probably relieved that Tom next to me opened up his mouth and said, you know, I'm Tom, how, you know, what are you working on? And just be friendly. I think everybody wants a friend. A hundred percent. My kids make fun of me sometimes because when I go on airplane rides, I, I love sitting next to new people and, and meeting interesting people. And as as awkward as it is when you sit down, you have that like 10 seconds or 20 seconds where you can either be friendly with that person and they'll probably talk your ear off for three hours, or you might not even, you know, they may not even look at you for three hours. And, and I, it's much more pleasant when you at least can be friendly and, you know, be a good human being and get to know somebody and care about them. And just read the room, right? I'll walk into one of these things and I'll see somebody, they're on their phone, right? They're scrolling. No one's really on their phone in that moment. They're faking it, right? Just like I am. Like, so, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, you can go just find somebody that's scrolling on their phone and say, hi, how are you? <laughs> and they will put their phone down. I certainly do because you just feel like a jerk because you're on your phone in a social situation. Those conferency type things, I think they're really pretty useful for meeting people. And it's a bit like planting a seed. Like it's not necessarily like you get a job out of those things, but you meet somebody that knows somebody. The more you do those things, the more seeds you are definitely planting. I have people coming back to me 10 years later going, remember we met at that thing and then we end up working together. And you're like, okay, that worked. It's funny how the the seeds that are planted grow over time. And I've, I've got stuff 15, 20 years ago that I put happened to put somebody in my phone and all of a sudden they reach out and you, sometimes I don't even remember them, but they apparently remembered enough about that interaction that they reached out, which is awesome. So if you look at what you're doing as a musician, you're serving and helping other people solve their problem. And when you realize you're actually helping and serving, I think that introvert in a lot of us that's scared to talk to somebody, it's not quite as scary to to open up that mouth then and when you're helping somebody versus trying to push something on somebody that they don't want. And I think that's really observant. I think that is true. And my experience is, I mean, you know, in film and television, you know, we're in post-production, we are the last 
step of the process. We do nothing really but fix, make things better. You know, it's pretty rare that the music, you know, spoils things. Um, we're usually making it better. We're making the director happier. Everyone's like, wow, yay. It's all sounding so great now. So they look at us like magicians, really. It's a mysterious, ethereal kind of substance that we work with, music. And we just come in and spread our fairy dust around and build a film score. And uh, meanwhile, you're not sleeping. But I can say of uh, that musicians are generally loved the world over, but in the film festival context, the composers are like with the partiers and, you know, the bohemians and we make all these fabulous film scores. And yeah, there's a lot of cachet attached to it. There's no question. And I think as I've, as I've been around the business longer, the more you realize, especially with TV series, like you were talking about, everybody, there's almost always going to be delays, right? And the last thing that typically gets filled in is the music. And, you know, maybe you were supposed to have weeks, but I'm, I have no doubt you had days or hours probably to do a score and you've still, you know, as a musician, I think you just smile about it and you don't sleep for a day or two and, and you deliver. And I think there's definitely appreciation when a director sees what, or when they half understand what you went through. I don't think they actually understand what is taking place all the time, but there are some, I think that do get it. And certainly in television, people get it all of the deadlines get crunched in every department. And yeah, ours get crunched quite a lot because there's a delivery right after hours, yep. right? So everybody, <laughs> so there's always that issue, but everybody is struggling and has issues and gets busy with stuff and whatever. And so you're not always doing a hundred percent, you know, sometimes that one wasn't as good as that one, but I find the best showrunners, they know that it's the same with the episodes. And, you know, sometimes an actor isn't fully on and all those kinds of things. And so it's really like a family thing. So if you do your best, this has been my experience. If you do your best and just give it your best effort, you will, the people will go, you did your best. You ran out of time. That's fine. We get it. Let's, we're on to the next one. Maybe I've been lucky, but I find it quite a loving environment. Everybody's kicking butt. So you're kind of like the Marines there and just everybody's taking care of each other and we're going to get through this, you know? Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about how did you end up teaching at the university? You, you've been doing film scores. I mean, you've won awards for 20 years, I, you know, big deal Canadian screen awards and Gemini awards. And I know you want to, it was like a Volkswagen competition. I think what made you want to come back and teach students? And, and you know, did you have 30 students, 50 students, hundred students, 200 students? <laughs> it started small and it got, it got more and more. So I graduated from the Ontario college of art, right? You sort of standard art school here in Toronto. And they encouraged me to apply for a job teaching sound. I had taken sound there, and that was mostly the kind of work that I did. So a position came up where the teacher that taught me, one of my mentors, John Tucker, he retired from that job, and I took over his job. And I was 30. I was young. So not huge classes, 10 or 15 students or something like that. I just fell in love with that. Talking about work is like research. Having to articulate your process a little bit makes me a better writer, makes me a better composer. Because I have to, th I mean, I have to describe it to somebody who's coming to me for answers. So I have to research. So it's really strengthened my writing muscles for sure. Anyway, I fell in love with that job and I was doing it for a long time. And then I had to take a break after about 10 years, but then I started mentoring somewhere else at another film school. And then I started at another university and just in the last 
couple of years. And that's like a music and film history class, but wide open so that there's no um, prerequisite. So it's not music students. It's a lot of mostly marketing, money, architects, engineers, biomed, doctors, everything. So they're taking it for a fun class then. It's a riot. It's really cool. So we get to just talk about art, you know, and talk about movies and what they're into. But, you know, I bring them through the canon and, you know, we come up from, you know, Max Steiner in the 30s and end up with whatever, John Williams or something, something. Talking about it, the more I pontificate about it, the humbler I get, because there's, of course, so much to learn, right? And then um, there's just, yeah, I get, I'm better at my job as a writer and as a communicator. That's maybe that's a bigger fringe benefit of that. Having to talk about it a lot has made me a better communicator with directors and stuff because I can make them feel more at ease with a process that is absolutely vague and crazy, right? No, you know, no one knows what to expect. Right. With, with limited direction given, you know. Yeah. So I'm curious. So this podcast is called The Successful Musicians Podcast. And what would you say is your definition today, you know, having been in this business for 20 plus years now, what would you call success as a musician for you now? It's a low bar as far as I'm concerned. It is, if you love music and you are playing, that's a success. Most people don't, even people that are really into music or, you know, I played when I was younger and then I stopped playing or something like that. I feel like, okay, well, that's, that's a plateau that you've reached. But if you want to keep sort of being in that joyful space, just playing is a huge part of it. Even just being a fan to me is just engaging with this art form. But I've started jamming with old friends again, kind of on a weekly basis. Something I haven't done for ages because I thought I was too busy. And we've started doing that again. And the transcendent joy of just getting together with a bunch of friends not, with no set list and we don't play songs. We just wig out, right? There's a whatever, we'll play, you know, Knocking on Heaven's Door or something like that. You know, a couple of like, like really simple tracks. But the joy of that is so profound. I come home from those sessions. I'm like, I feel like I've been on the beach. I've had a vacation in Mexico for a week. It's just so therapeutic just to be in that space where you're truly in the moment. And it's the same for me when I'm writing quickly for television, but you get into that sort of psychological space where you're really, truly living in the moment. There's no past and there's no future. You're just in the zone. It's pretty profound. It's one of the main, I mean, I think it's one of the big reasons people play in the first place. Well, and I I think that's some great insight. That's something that not very many people have said, but I, I think finding that joy in the, you know, just playing and having this blank canvas to to enjoy. A lot of times I do think people get too busy or too worked up in their, whatever the thing is that's taking the majority of their time and thought. I mean, I've heard people say, you know, take a 10 or 15 minute walk. And, and that's one of the most therapeutic things and best things you can do for your health. I think for sure music is, is probably even better than, than taking that walk. If you just put yourself at the piano or the guitar or whatever it is you play and enjoy it. I'd be curious to know if there's any studies out there that show the health of people that have taken 15, 20 minutes a day to enjoy the music instrument and to see if they outperform or, you know, are just happier in general. It would be a really interesting study. Yeah. You would think, I bet you would agree, right? Off the top of our heads, does it feel like it's healthy and therapeutic? Yep. Yep. There's no question. Like, why would we keep doing it? I mean, it could be snowboarding. It could be a million things or gardening or all these things people do. 
But it does activate a part of my brain anyway that it's like I don't get to any yeah. other way. Like there's no other way to get into that state. And I think a lot about when I was playing music as a teenager and hearing, you know, chord progressions for the first time. I remember some of those moments. I remember hearing the blues for mm-hmm. the first time when I was you know, like, six or eight or whatever it was. And how mind-boggling that was. It was like seeing the color blue for the first time in your life. And I always think about what is it I can do in my playing or my writing that will rekindle that emotion, that discovery of sound or a chord or a you know, melody for the first time in your life. And, you know, it's less frequent, of course, as you get older, because you've heard a million kinds of music, but it still happens to me. I'll still see a film or hear a record and go, that is completely new to me. Well, and then, then we start getting older and we start forgetting things and then it still feels new, I think, sometimes to us, right? Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. So a lot of the piano that I do, I've done a lot of sheet music over the years. And I would say my biggest audience is kind of that older lady group that are that are more almost retiring. And it's it's interesting to see how many people when they don't have to do the work and maybe they're not as busy, how many people return back to the piano or whatever that instrument was and have that desire to to tap back into creativity and just unfortunately I think it's a shame that we can't figure that out when we're in our 20s and 30s and continue that habit from a health standpoint. And I think a lot of people are there's this thing in the arts that's sort of performative, right? We have an expectation that if you're going to play or even, you know, or play publicly or something that you've got to be so good and like people are afraid to pick these things up again, right? So if anybody's, you know, on the fence about this, just like do it in private or whatever it is you need to do to just get back into it again. You don't have to tell anybody you're doing it. <laughs> just play in secret. I did a concert a couple of weeks ago and it was my favorite thing of the night. It was fun interacting with the audience and we had about 50 people and had did this dinner. But at the end of the night, this guy came up and he's probably in his mid to late 50s. And he kept me, he said, you know, I wanted to come because I got your easier piano hymn book. I'm not a good piano player and I've been able to sit down and play out of that. But he said to me, this, this is what really just blew my mind. He said, I loved that you messed up at the beginning, you know, during your songs, it gave me hope that I can do it too. And made me realize, you know what, if even these great people that are supposed to be the performers and you know professionals mess up, then it's totally fine for me to mess up too. And he said, that was, it just was like a game changer for him. But for me as an artist, you know, I was embarrassed, I guess, that I've really kind of messed up on a song pretty bad. It, it's a, <laughs> we all did. It was not good. I, I apologized <laughs> even before it was a request somebody had done. And I'd, I'd written this tune. If you took Moonlight Sonata from Beethoven, and I thought, okay, what if I were to score a scene where Beethoven's losing his hearing, right? And so it's got this Moonlight Sonata, but it had multiple sharps and some flats, and it just sounds really cool. But I, I just finished it like three days earlier, and it was not polished at all. Everybody loved it, but what was funny is that was their favorite thing that I got comments from people on, and I did a terrible job of performing it. Remember that people love the flaws as much as the perfection. I think sometimes we as artists and musicians, or even probably in film, think we've got to have it be perfect. And the fact that we're human and we aren't perfect is the trait that actually draws an audience or fans or makes it seem real. Even in the film, I'm sure you've had songs that you've done and you're like, oh, there's a bad note, but it might be the thing that made people love it even more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with this, that there's so much energy 
on that that boundary between keeping it together and kind of going off the rails a little bit, right? It's a pretty exciting place to be. You, when you, you see, you know, a jazz band quartet playing or something, right? And it's all just a bit unhinged and it's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm never happy with, just because I'm a, you know, a hand ringer, I'm never happy with anything that I turn in. It's never polished and ready. You just want, give me 10 more minutes or another two hours and it'll be there. Exactly. And it's like, okay, it's ready when it's ready. And then a year later I'll go, hmm, it seems okay. And I think we could ask Hans Zimmer, right? Were you happy with that score? And he'd go, no, I'm sure. Maybe, who (laughs) knows? But, you know, it could very well be that, no, I didn't get this done. I didn't get that done. But as an audience, we don't necessarily know that. You mentioned imposter syndrome earlier. It's like, I mean, that's never gone away for me. That's just like, that is the state of affairs. I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to be satisfied. That's one of the things that keeps me going. I want to try and do it better each time. I don't know if I am or not, but the desire to do that is sort of driving me for sure. Like I look at the last one and it's like, oh, I could mix that better. That's melodies kind of weak, something, something, something. There's always a thing. As I'm listening to you talk, I can tell that you love doing the music and and just love that process and the journey. And even though that journey sometimes is a little bumpy and rough and, you know, you can use the word suffer, but I've heard people say, you know, you need to do what you're passionate about or what's, what's your passion and figure that out. And then you won't work another day in your life. But I was, I heard the other day, the word passion actually means to suffer. (laughs) and, And what, and what's so funny is, you know, when you find that passionate thing that you love to do with your music, it probably doesn't feel so much like suffering it, but the journey to get to enjoy that thing is if you're willing to suffer for that thing you're doing, all of a sudden now that's probably where we find a lot of the most happiness and kind of enjoyment and things that we maybe are most proud of is that discord and the dissonance and the hard things that we went through means so much more than that perfect performance maybe that happened. In the grand scheme of things, is there that for me? Like, it's hard. It's a crazy work. It's, I mean, you know, and the hours are, are long and it's, and it's challenging, but in the grand scale of suffering or work or, you know, or where I'm teaching and I'm marking papers or something yeah. like that, that's <laughs> drudgery. That's drudgery. I get oh, it. Yeah. That's suffering. So writing music. And I, I mean, I've, I say this often, you know, like, even in the best of days, can I possibly complain? Even in the worst days, can I possibly complain about this? Like, no. So I know we're getting low on time, but what what advice would you have for the composers in working with directors and maybe helping bring the best out of that director? You know, have you got any examples or what advice would you have to better work with directors? There's a bunch of things. I mean, you approach with an open heart, for sure, right? The director, whose project you're about to work on, knows more about that film than you ever will, particularly if they've written it. They're bringing, you know, family experiences into it and all this kind of stuff. So I try and learn some of those things, like where is this coming from? Why are you making this? And what did you want to say about it? We, we talk about film. We talk about the movie and the story that's being told. And that's really the job in the end. That is your job as a composer. It's just part of the storytelling team. The camera people and the costume designers and the actors, everybody else is part of this team, the storytelling. So that's the number one concern. Your music doesn't matter. I find sometimes when I'm working with less experienced directors, they want to talk about the form of the music. You don't get into the nitty gritty and talk about instrumentation and all those kinds of things. I always sort of beg off all of that stuff. Let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about something we both 
share. Um, let's talk about emotions and, you know, what you want the audience to be feeling and let's just talk about colors. And so it's really kind of an abstract conversation, but really trying to, to get to the heart of how you want the audience to feel in each moment versus nerding out about music or treating it like a rock video and they're going to put in their favorite songs and that kind of thing. I really try and I, we talk about story. That is, I find the more you talk about story, I think the more directors are open to that collaboration because that, that's how they feel. They're trying to serve the story just like we are. That's interesting you say it that way is just getting into those emotions because that director, they wouldn't be doing that film. I mean, I guess it might happen once in a while, but most of the time they're very, they care a lot and care deeply about how people are going to feel. And I'm not sure that the camera or even the, the actors sometimes try, you know, connect on that emotional level as much as maybe they should. And I think music though, that's the key to finding that right sound is understanding how the director wants people to feel that's that's brilliant yeah yeah and it's the big guns at the end you've got a movie with temp music whatever it is Hans Zimmer half the time and (laughs) you know so you're replacing and reinventing all of those things but you are like really you know we've really got our hands on the levers of people's emotions like in this is the moment we'll be watching frame by frame like now right that's where the timpani hits or the trumpet, you know, does that solo or whatever it is. And just like, you know, people are crying and like, okay, you know, I, I did it. I got it. We got it in the right spot. There's all kinds of nitty gritty and stuff, but never underestimating the director. I see a lot of composers think, oh, I know, I know what they want. I know how to score this. I know what's going to be right for them and they'll do it. And it's not right. It's not what the director envisioned and they didn't figure out what those emotions were and how to how to convey them not necessarily like do we need cello here you know violins here or whatever it's more about just like that emotional stuff those are the most important conversations i find what is the best advice that you feel like you've gotten over the years to help you be successful in this music composer world that you're in now so you know what comes to mind is something my mom used to say to me, which was, let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with music. But I think about that a lot, behaving ethically and with kindness and generosity in all of this. In the end, the music and the movies, everything that we work on, our records, it's all going to kind of turn to dust, I think. But the relationships that we've forged with the people that we collaborate with, that's truly important to me. I realize now more than ever. Half the time, I mean, you know, is to show good or is to show bad? I don't know. The people I'm working with are amazing. They're like family. I love it. They love me. It's great. We've worked so hard together. That's the stuff I'm taking away from everything. The, 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 uh, what, it's so cliche, but, you know, the journey is half the, des- whatever. It's not the destination, it's the journey. What, what am I trying to say? And then enjoying it while you're on that journey, because it, it may not be pleasant for part of the journey, but being able to learn to enjoy it and love it along the way is, is key to I think, being happy and just in life in general. Building up those relationships that are often, sometimes they're sticky at first, where, where it's like it's a bit sticky. We're kind of at odds creatively or something. And it's like, how do I make this work? How am I going to make this work? And when you figure that out, to me, that's as, as big a deal as figuring out the melody that's whatever. I mean, the relationship with the director to me is definitely part of the key to the puzzle of the whole reason for doing this thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think that director, helping that director be proud and of what they're putting out and the key to getting that second job or the follow, you know, the next job with them too. There's no question. All my business is repeat business. I work my tail off on somebody's film. Like I just give it 110%. And if it works, then they're happy. They'll come back. Yeah. That's some great words of advice, Tom. I, thank you so much for sharing your time. I, I, I could keep talking with you for another hour or two. We should, we should definitely catch up another time. But uh, if people want to go learn about you and your music and check out some of the projects you're working on, is there a website you'd like to send to? Or where should they go? We'll put this in the show notes for you as well. It's just tomthird.com. Everything comes up. If people search my name, it all, all the nonsense comes up far as I can tell. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you again for just sharing your experiences and advice. Uh, I think I know you've helped, you will have helped multiple people that listen to this down the road, whether it's, you know, in the future as well, this is going to be around for a long time. And I, I think you've definitely left some gold nuggets and words of wisdom that will help a lot of people. So hopefully if, if this has impacted you, share it with others, you know, or in the music business or just need to hear this interview because this has been a, a great one. So thank you, Tom. Thank you. Real pleasure. Had a great time. Hey, it's Jason here, and I hope you've gotten a lot of value out of this episode. Be sure to check out our show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you'd like to support our podcast, there's a few things that you can do to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, it will help ensure that you don't miss a future episode. Second, if you'll share it with your friends on social media or send it via email or message, it helps us spread the word as well. And third, if you'll leave an honest review, it really helps with the algorithms so that other people can find our podcast. Finding success and fulfillment in the music industry is possible, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.